According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Join me one more time in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. We are, uh, we've got one more point of study to cover in terms of lessons of the coming kingdom. That is a point, though, that has subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H. So uh, we'll see how far we get with it today. I'm under a lot of pressure now that uh, Gina has told me about her notebook. She has uh, a handful of pages remaining and not clear on whether uh, we'll finish our Life of Christ series in time. So ah, that's a treasure right there. That one notebook for the entire Life of Christ series. That's amazing. What's our lesson today? Today is lesson number 290, something like that. 291, okay. Got an old bulletin up here. All right, 291. All right. Episode 20, the last Judean and pre ministry of Jesus, the lessons in the coming kingdom. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer so that uh, we're not defiling his courts. We are cleansed and prepared for study, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again just thankful. Father, we don't deserve to be here, but you've uh, invited us to be here. You've ordered us to be here. You expect your children to uh, rightly divide the word of truth, to be diligent to present ourselves uh, as workmen needing not to be ashamed. So, Father, here we are. We're presenting ourselves before you. We ask that you would guide us into the truth, equip us, train us, prepare us, motivate us, Father. Uh, if uh, we're struggling in some area in, in motivation or hunger or passion, then uh, then work in that, feed that, promote that hunger. Um, do not allow the, the love to grow cold there, Father, and keep us ever, uh, ever hungry, ever learning, and, uh, Father, positive to what you have for us on a daily basis. Father, open our eyes today as we study these lessons on the coming kingdom. Help us to anticipate uh, the work that we're going to have as a part of these glories yet to be unveiled. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Lessons in the coming kingdom. We saw, starting in verse 20, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And uh, there's a lot of application that comes out of these words. Um, and we'll touch on it briefly, but we're going to be very short with it, even as Christ was very short with it. Just two short verses, a handful of words for the Pharisees, and then basically he was done with the Pharisees. Starting in verse 22 and taking you all the way down to the end of the chapter here, he's got a message for his disciples. So you see that in verse 22, he said to the disciples. And so when you contrast um, what he says to them, he answered to them and said, and then you see what he said to the disciples, it's clear. Uh, which of these two messages then has the, the main impact? Which, which of these two messages is really the overall point to the episode? What is it that you and I would embrace for our own edification and our own application, see? And I think it's clear that his words to the Pharisees are 
dismissive. They're short. Uh, they, they have an interest in, in eschatology, but that's putting the cart before the horse. The first thing they need to do is be saved. They need to recognize that the kingdom of God is internalized, that to be born again, they, they've got to catch on to what Nicodemus needed to be ca- uh, catch on to when he told him in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And, uh, and so I think it's pretty well consistent with uh, that message to Nicodemus and uh, other applications that, that uh, all he's giving them here is uh, quit looking for signs. Quit looking for signs, quit looking for fulfilled prophecy, quit looking for eschatology. Uh, put first things first. If you're not born again, then there's nothing else in the Word of God that even applies to you. That's got to be the first priority. All right. Now, uh, we gave you three points of study a week ago. Uh, first of all, themes from this message are repeated in the Olivet Discourse. And so much of what we cover today, uh, last week and today, is uh, going to come back again in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. Uh, so don't be surprised, and this will serve as a good introduction to that. I think we'll be more comprehensive with some of the eschatology when we are actually in the Olivet Discourse, more so than what we're going to do with today. Uh, Luke's record here should be understood separately, and we need to understand that Luke wasn't confused. It bugs me to death when I read a commentary and they say, well, you know, Luke, Luke was confused, or the author was confused. No. The author was writing under the verbal plenary inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, okay? You're the bonehead that's confused and writing your commentary about with a flawed understanding of what inspiration even is, okay? Luke should not be confused because Luke records this chapter in chapter 21, and then he also records the Olivet Discourse in, in Luke 21, 8. So Luke was very clear. He knew that this was a, a message given on two different occasions, probably more than two different occasions. I would expect if we've got a gospel record where something is recorded two or three different times, probably it was something that Christ taught 20 or 30 different times. But it found its way into the written record on the, the two or three occasions that we have here. Secondly, kingdom doctrine must rightly develop distinctions. All right, We want to be cautious. And if you are a, a student of the Word of God, if you are a diligent student of the Word of God, then you're not going to be sloppy in how you approach different expressions. And you're going to evaluate kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. And you're going to ask yourself, uh, are those synonyms? Is that just basically two different ways of saying the same thing? Or are they, is there any difference between kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven? And you're going to evaluate. Should we consider them as identical concepts or should we differentiate between them? Okay. And at the very least, you've evaluated the different uh, elements and you've come to a decision. Yes, there are, they should be interchangeable. They should be identical. Or no, they're not interchangeable. They're not identical. And here's the reasons why. Okay. I, I'm much... Uh, even when I disagree with someone on their conclusion, uh, at least I appreciate the fact that they've identified it as a legitimate question and they've weighed it out and they've evaluated the, the uh, evidences for and against and they've, they've come to a conclusion. And I appreciate that. Uh, it's uh, something else then if, if they haven't even evaluated it, didn't even consider it or felt it wasn't even worthy of asking. Okay. The third element beyond kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is kingdom of Israel distinctions and we want to be very cautious that we don't equate kingdom of israel with kingdom of heaven uh it's easy to do in particular because many of the questions he was asked specifically were oriented to kingdom of israel 
and which is where a lot of the Jewish people had their focus. They wanted to start whooping on the Gentiles, right? I mean, they wanted, they were tired of being trampled and, and being dominated. And, and clearly, it was promised to them that they were going to, that when Messiah comes, that one of the benefits was going to be the exaltation of the Jewish people. The, the mountain of the Lord would, would rise up and the Gentiles would flow to their stream. And uh, that is uh, a consideration. However, we don't want to confuse the temporal life blessings with spiritual life blessings or equate kingdom of Israel with kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. We want to maintain separate distinctions there. Uh, now, along with the kingdom distinctions, and I do separate them, not every pastor does. Uh, there are pastors, even doctrinal pastors, that will view kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven as interchangeable synonyms. I think that there are realms that we want to keep them separate. Okay. Now, Related studies must also separate out the thrones. Throne of God, throne of uh, God and the Lamb, throne of David. Okay, There are different thrones. And we want to understand those distinctions. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not seated on the throne of David. If you read somebody today telling you that Jesus is presently right now seated on the throne of David at the right hand of God, trying to combine and blend, it's... Uh, you know what you're reading, okay? You're reading um, modern Dallas Seminary, what's called progressive dispensationalism, okay? And there's nothing progressive about it. Uh, it's just a label they've used, but it was an attempt to try to find a common ground with the covenant theology guys. And sadly, all they've done is surrender to the covenant theology guys because it's not dispensational. And when you start blending the throne of David with the throne of God and the throne of heaven, then you've just abandoned dispensationalism. And uh, the covenant guys know it. The co they, they rejoice over Dallas's surrender to their, to their understanding. And I think it's the Dallas guys that are still clueless or still think that they're looking to find middle ground. No, so let's understand our thrones. Also, we want to understand the sonship titles of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David. And there's a glory associated with each one. There is sovereignty associated with each one. There's uh, blessings associated with each one. You understand. And so uh, between the different kingdoms, the different thrones, the different sonship titles, I think um, when you've uh, done your homework and you uh, have a, a distinction between these concepts and you have it fixed in your mind what each of these is, is dealing with, I think you do yourself a huge favor in, uh, in sorting out or rightly dividing the word of truth, such as we are uh, commanded to do. All right. The third point of study, which we also covered last week. Pharisee questions persisted, even in his efforts to remain incognito. Remember, he's trying to stay low-key. He's no longer walking publicly. He is uh, not maintaining a public uh, uh, schedule where his whereabouts are being published and where his speaking engagements are being uh, advertised and promoted ahead of time. He has gone now into a more circumspect, uh, careful procedure because the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, is actually now dedicated to his murder. And they, uh, they've, they've wanted him dead for some time, but as of now, they are actually putting procedures, plans into effect to make it happen. 
And knowing that that is the case, Jesus Christ is not afraid of dying. He's not afraid of, of uh, the danger, but he is intent on being obedient to the Father's purpose. And the Father's purpose is for him to die on Passover, not for him to be, and to die on a cross, to, to, to be the sin bearer, not to be murdered by a mob or, or uh, you know, a knife to the back or anything like that. He's not afraid of dying, but he is being smart about how he conducts his business. We, we all should be. We all should be uh, shrewd as serpents while harmless as doves. We, all should, we shouldn't be naive or stupid about the, the day and age in which we live, about the fallen world in which we live. And so Christ is trying to remain um, incognito. He's working hard to uh, maintain uh, some anonymity and privacy in certain ways. And yet these Pharisee questions persist and uh, they keep track. And, and you would imagine, of course, the Pharisees have agents pretty much in every uh, Jewish uh, settlement. And so uh, they were able to keep tabs of where he was and what was going on. Now, his answer was rather cryptic. He says there are no observations. The kingdom of uh, heaven, or the kingdom of God, is not coming with observations, clues. Okay? And the vocabulary there is rather unusual. It's not the usual word for signs. I find it unfortunate that um, the New American Standard chooses to render it signs to be observed. It's really focusing on the observation. Uh, but it does not come with observations. And that's kind of cryptic, if you think about it. Because how many other places does Jesus talk about the signs of the kingdom? The kingdom is coming with signs. It's coming with hundreds of signs. Uh, there are other passages that address that. In fact, this passage addresses it in just a very short context. As soon as he's done with them, right, he tells them there's no signs. And then he turns to his disciples and he starts to outline, we're going to see A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H, a lot of the signs uh, for the disciples' edification of things to anticipate with respect to the coming kingdom. And that's why I view this as being rather cryptic. He tells the Pharisees there will be no observations despite the subsequent exhortation. I mean, the very following verses here. And many other messages and passages which demand numerous signs. For you and I, this is a tool. You can use this as a tool. Um, if you happen to find yourself debating somebody who either doesn't understand the rapture or is confused as to a post-tribulational rapture, or they try to combine the, the rapture and the second advent, which is the same as a post-tribulational rapture, really. Um, and if you want some, uh, some pointers that you can use to, to try to spotlight why the rapture is not the second advent and why they're different, uh, this is one of the, the, the most obvious ways to do it because the rapture has no signs. There are no signs. There are no warnings. There are no preconditions. There's nothing that has to happen first before the rapture can happen. All right. Which is considerably different from second advent. Second advent can't come until, like I say, literally dozens or even more than a hundred, hundreds of things have to happen before second advent. Second advent can't come today, but the rapture sure can. and I hope it does. All right. So when we describe this, when you start teaching people, it's like teaching people the difference between Israel and the church. Okay. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. You know, things like that. Uh, Israel has a land grant. Our citizenship is in heaven. Things like that. Just find one or two little things like that that you can just rattle off the top of your head. Think about maybe attach a scripture to something and and just give them things to, to, to wrap their minds around. You want to do that with rapture and second advent. Say there's no signs for the rapture. But there are signs for second advent. 
Okay? So, this, uh, what Jesus affirms for these guys anyway, Jesus affirmed that the kingdom was neither here nor there, but it was right where they were, literally within you, in your midst, among you. The expression within you literally means the kingdom goes wherever the kingdom citizens go. He's trying to give them the reality that the kingdom is, uh, is uh, an internal reality. Meaning what for them? And they're in there from their standpoint. Uh, they need to get saved. They need to have the reality that is the kingdom. And, uh, and we can do the same thing. I don't know if you've got, if you ever encounter folks that uh, have a, Morbid curiosity over controversial questions. Okay, Paul warns us about that as a uh, sidetrack of ministry. We don't want to uh, get bogged down in that kind of a thing. And as a pastor, I'm not even allowed to go there. I've got to feed my flock. I've got to stay focused on what our assignment is here. But that being said, uh, what happens when you encounter somebody like that? who has a morbid interest over controversial questions and wranglings about words and, and so on and so forth. What is your response? Well, look at what Jesus did here. And I think we've got a pattern there. And they, and they want to go into all these other things and blah, blah, blah. And well, what do you think about Nostradamus? And what do you think about, you know, the, the, the Mayan calendar? You know, the world's going to end in 2012. And they've got all these things they want to ask about. And say, well, you know what? There's, there's answers to all of that. But right now I'm concerned that your soul has not been redeemed. Take them to the gospel. You know, the Bible addresses all kinds of things. Future, you want to talk about the future? Oh, I can tell you the future from Alpha to Omega. We can tell you about the millennial kingdom, the fullness of times, the new heavens, the new earth. We can talk about angels descending with the Son of Man and power and great glory, but none of that really matters right now because you don't have Christ. And just take it back to that issue. The kingdom of God is within you. It's among you. And you have the opportunity to boil it down. And... Uh, and see how that goes. I used to work with a guy. In fact, Kevin. I've only known two Kevins in my entire life. And the first Kevin I ever knew uh, was a fellow I worked with in the Sheriff's Department. He was just, um, I mean, every time, every conversation, every everything was book of Revelation, book of Revelation, book of Revelation. And, you know, after a while, and, and he knew I was in seminary. He knew I was studying to be a pastor. And so he felt that, you know, I should be able to answer everything he wanted to know about the book of Revelation. And uh, and then finally I said, Kevin, um, there's 65 other books that come before you get to Revelation. You know, I mean, it's not when when you're a rookie. I mean, when you're young in faith and you're barely even saved, don't start there. You know, get grounded, get get built up in the faith, and a little here and a little there, and add and this and this. So, uh, but you know, it's. The mindset of sensationalism and the gee, wow, what's happening next? And, and all the excitement of that kind of a thing. I, I can understand it, but we just got to be careful with it. All right. I think the message reflects the delayed manifestation of the visible kingdom in a similar way to his words for Pontius Pilate when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my soldiers would be fighting even until now. Okay, in John 18:36, I think it's similar. I think it's a dismissive statement. He's not going to say a whole lot to them. Okay, he's not lying to them, but he is very—he's uh, limiting what it is that he has to say to them. He's limiting what it is that he has to say to them. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, you know, is Pilate entitled to a longer development? Is he entitled to 
uh, a more comprehensive, uh, no, neither of these Pharisees. So uh, when Pilate says, uh, you know, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What, what, what have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Okay. Now, know that when he's telling Pilate that, he's, he's not lying and everything he says is true. However, there is more to the reality than what it is that he's saying. My kingdom is not of this world. Okay. Well, the Davidic throne certainly is. The kingdom of Israel absolutely is. And his right to be called king of the Jews is a thing of this world. It is a kingdom of this world. But at the moment, on, on this Thursday, okay, or actually Friday, good Friday, on this day in which he's crucified, he's not concerned, he's not thinking, he's not dwelling on the Davidic throne. He's not dwelling on the kingdom that's of this world. And when Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It reflects upon where his priorities are, where Jesus' mind is set. It's set on going to the cross. It's set on redeeming humanity. It's set on obeying the Father. Okay? So he says, as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And, uh, and I find that interesting. I think it's similar to what we have here now in Luke 17. It's a message that's reflecting the delayed manifestation of the visible kingdom on this earth. Because he's, uh, uh, they're, they're intent on murdering him and he has gone off to be in, in a measure of secrecy and privacy and, and to be cautious about his whereabouts. And so his mind is starting now to be totally focused on the work of the cross. And they want to talk about signs. Okay? And so he says the kingdom's not coming with signs to be observed. It's not coming with observations. It's within you. It's in your midst. All right, then he turns to his disciples and he starts to give them probably the rundown that the Pharisees wanted. Okay, he gives them signs to be observed. He gives them observations. He gives them truth relating to the things to come so that they can be properly oriented. The Lord presented an eschatological prophecy for his disciples. And I can't stress enough, it's, it's, a, it's a key component in uh, hermeneutics you ask who's speaking and who is he speaking to who is receiving the the message who is it designed for it's absolutely vital and so when you have uh, when you have him answering them in verse 20 and then you have him saying to the disciples in verse 22 you've got to rightly divide and recognize okay these are two separate messages here one to the pharisees in their hostility their need for salvation and one to the disciples in their uh, legitimate need to be instructed regarding future things, things to come. So he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will look to you. They will say to you, look there, look here. Okay. It's the same language that he uses when he was addressing the uh, uh Pharisees, when he said the kingdom is not coming with observations and they will say, look here, there it is. Um, he says, nor will they say, I'm sorry, nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. 
Okay, he's telling the Pharisees, don't don't pay attention when when people are saying here it is or there it is, because they're not going to say that. Now he tells the disciples, you know what, they're going to say that, but don't pay attention to it anyway. Okay, you follow that? So look here or look there. Do not go away and do not run after them. Don't allow yourself to be caught up in the excitement of a of a movement, in the excitement of a fad or a craze or uh, uh, some kind of a spectacular thing. Oh, you've got to come here. You've got to come now. And it can only be seen here. It can only be viewed here. Okay? Don't get wrapped up in that. You know what's happening. You know the schedule. You know the, if not the exact precise schedule, you at least know the overall framework. You know the plan of God. You know, the Time magazine highlights a, a, uh, a tomb. And a tomb that's got, or a, a coffin, one of the ostuaries of uh, the ancient world. And it's got an inscription on it. Uh, and, and it's uh, the Jesus, the brother of James. And they're, oh, maybe we found it. Maybe we found it. Everyone's going to get all excited about it. You know? Not me. You know, I might chuckle a little bit because uh, I'm, you know, I know how fruitless their pursuits are. I could save them a whole lot of time. Okay? If they found a tomb and that tomb's got a body in it, it's the wrong tomb. Because the real tomb of Jesus doesn't have a body in it. Not his body anyway. They might have reused it later on and put a different body in there. But, you know, they get all excited though because, oh, well, this could be this and this could be this. And, and it's going to sell books and it's going to sell things, commercials and, and travel and all kinds of excitement. Would, I mean, would you pay admission to go see a tomb if someone told you it was Jesus' tomb? Okay, if there was a body still in it? No. I don't know right off the top of my head. You got the wrong tomb. Okay? Or what if somebody tells you he's Jesus? Okay? You ever had anybody tell I've, I've had people tell me they're Jesus. All right? They're demoniacs and they're different. But um, they've told me, not lately. I mean, back in my jail days, I met a lot of demoniacs. And... Uh, Claiming to be Jesus. Coming to rule the world. Well, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Why not? Because I know when Jesus really does come, that he's not going to land all the way on the earth. He's going to come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. The we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. All right? And so somebody I'm looking at face to face tells me he's Jesus. Sorry. We're at too low of an altitude here for that to be the reality. I'm still in my physical body. I haven't been raptured yet, so you're not Jesus. Yeah, I mean, just right there. If, if, if you know if the plan of God, the Alpha and Omega framework, the overall scheme of, 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 uh, of dispensations and stewards and, and, and all of this, then you're not going to be tossed here and there uh, to and fro by these waves of doctrine. You've got a stability. And that's what gets addressed here. Well, let me just read through the verses and we'll go back and make the comments. How about that? So, he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
And so as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. Uh, notice marriage wasn't a high priority there in Sodom. <laughs> but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Yeah, turning back is a bad thing. Turning back means you're not making it. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that, and that's a verse that gets abused, so we'll, we'll deal with it. Verse 34, I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, another will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. I don't believe verse 36 belongs. I think it's inserted because of the parallelism with uh, the Olivet Discourse. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Anyway, it belongs in Matthew, it doesn't belong there. Uh, verse 37, And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. You thought he was cryptic towards the Pharisees? There's also some cryptic uh, conclusion here towards the disciples. The truth is, he's giving them an, an eschatological outline, and yet the fullness of it, they're not going to gather until mystery is unveiled, and uh, until they get the same grace perspective that we have as uh, New Testament believers in, uh, in a lot of the things that they have to digest from this one message here. Probably also why he gave it to them a second time. And a third time, and however many more times he gave it to them between now and the cross. All right, let's uh, spell it out. Like I say, A through H is our subpoints. First of all, he tells them about a coming day of unseen eschatology. I keep using that word. You know what I mean when I say eschatology? Eschatos meaning last, study of last things, study of future things. Okay. Technically, last things. There's um, a difference. Understand, uh, much of the Bible was prophetic on the day it was written. And uh, much of it is no longer prophetic from our standpoint because it's been fulfilled. Most of the first Advent prophecies, of course, they were prophetic on the day they were written. When Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, that was prophecy, but not eschatology. So don't think that prophecy and eschatology are interchangeable. Although from our standpoint now, given that we are in the last days, the church age is, is the, the position of the way that it is, virtually everything that remains for us that's still prophetic, virtually most of that is rightly considered eschatology, last things. Okay, So depending on how you're approaching it, you can use the terms interchangeably, but it's not exactly right to do that. The coming day of unseen eschatology, a day when you want to see things come, but you don't see it. You will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. In other words, like he was teaching in the Kingdom of Heaven mystery parables, is that the kingdom is going away, visibly, 
the king is ascending. The king will be seated in heaven. The king will not be seated on earth. That what we will observe with our eyes, what we will function in, we will live here on earth, is um, a longing. Uh, aliens and pilgrims in a world that's not our home. Aliens and pilgrims in a world where um, things aren't running very well because the adversary is behind it. Days of sadness. Days of, of grief because they don't have to be as dark as they are, but they are. Okay? Better days are coming because the king is coming. Right? Now, of course, Jesus isn't free to unveil all the mysteries of the church. I believe in his humanity. He's not even uh, clued in to all the mysteries of the church. Where would he have learned them? Where would, he have, where would Jesus have learned church-age doctrine? Remember, he laid aside his omniscience. So everything that he knows when he's delivering these Bible classes is what he's learned himself in his humanity. Okay? And uh, other than the, the, the little glimpses he speaks under prophetic utterance, Jesus does not say a, a whole lot regarding the church. He just has clues. He tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church. He tells uh, Philip, he says, where I'm going there you will be also. I go to prepare a place for you. He has a few prophetic utterances that touch on the church tangentially. Did I say that right? I've got to quit using fancy words. It touches on the church only at an angle. But he doesn't reveal mystery doctrine. He doesn't flat out say, hey, you know, a new body is coming that's neither Jew nor Gentile. None of that. Okay? But he says, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. You know, even if it has to be the day of wrath. I'd love to see it because then I know that the day of blessing is on the way. Okay, got a day of wrath, a day of judgment, a day of regathering, a day of blessing, a day of assurance. There's, there's, the day of the Lord actually has a number of days incorporated within the entirety of of what you deal with, okay? Because the day of the Lord is the tribulation, the second advent, the millennial kingdom, and on into the the day of God, which is the the fullness of time for a thousand generations. Uh, but just one of the days of the Son of Man, just one, would be fine, because then I know that the rest is unfolding and it's it's coming down, right? But we're in this day right now. We're in this moment right now. I don't know about you, but I'm you know I'm ready. I you know I think it's long enough for a trumpet to sound. You know, it's uh, it's already beyond sadness to the point where our, the name of our Savior is, is profanity in, uh, in, uh, in, in the culture that we live in. You know, you drop a hammer on your foot and you can either shoot, you can either uh, shout uh, something that's uh, vulgar or something that's um, whatever, vile. And and why is it that unbelievers will in, will use the name of our Savior in the same kind of realm? It's just it's it's horrid. But it's a reflection of of how dark the darkness has become. When even conscience is seared, when even morality and decency is is now so polluted that it's uh, it truly is anti-Christian in in uh, in every detail. All right. Well, here we are. And who would ever you know they they had no concept for knowing this. They had no concept because their whole framework to prophecy is the coming Christ, the coming Christ, the coming Christ. And everything that we now, uh, you and I, will uh, divide out first Advent, second Advent, right? First Advent, second Advent. They, they didn't do any of that. They couldn't. For them, it was Advent. For them, it was Messiah. It was coming Christ. 
And this idea that now there's a parenthesis, there's an in-between stage, there's a stage when um, the Christ came, but he's gone again and, and hasn't, is, isn't coming back yet. That's a whole new uh, uh, way for them to be thinking. And uh, so he starts here in this uh, message with this truth. And then he says, <laughs> false messiahs are going to arise. But understand something. They're going to have a finite geographic impact. False messiahs will arise, but will have a finite geographic impact. In other words, they're going to be here or they're going to be there. They're going to be only one place. Okay. And quite often for a very limited period of time. Why is that? <laughs> you got to, you got to come now, right? Um, you know, they'll say to you, look there, look here. Okay, that's how cult leaders get their followings. You got to go to them. You got to follow, and and it's quite a bit different from what's going to happen when the Son of Man really does return. All right, and you won't need uh, you won't need some special knowledge to find out where you can go to uh, learn from this Messiah, because uh, his his whereabouts are going to be public knowledge for the entire planet. The sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the sky. And He's going to return in, in victory. He's going to return conquering. So, uh, yeah, anybody who tells you today that he's, uh, he's the Messiah, He's not. He's absolutely not. Okay, I was reading about some of the Jewish um, rabbis that have been held to be messianic in, in some... Uh, offshoots of, of modern Judaism. One, one very prominent that died in 1992. And so they kind of, there's still a crowd that thinks he's the Christ, uh, but that he's hiding. He didn't really die. He's just hidden away in the in the uh, particular branch of their Chavad um, Orthodox Judaism and that. Well, I can save them a whole lot of time. He's not the Christ. Okay. The Christ came. The Christ redeemed humanity. And he's been seated at the Father's right hand since 33 A.D. Finite geographic impact. Look there. Look here. He says, don't even waste your time. Don't go away. Do not run after them. Do not run after them. See, because when Christ returns, his arrival will be globally undeniable. It's going to be obvious to everybody. When Christ returns, his arrival will be globally undeniable. Undeniable. You're not going to need Fox News to, uh, you know, to gong their little news flash, the, you know, the Fox News breaking news alert with a gong and the graphic and then the switch over to Shepard Smith telling you that uh, breaking developments now in the, in the Middle East. It's going to be globally undeniable, starting with the stars of the heavens falling from one star then appearing. Can you imagine going out in the sky and the stars are all gone and it's dark and then one star appears and it starts growing and growing and growing, right? You know how hideous that's going to be? They're going to hate it. All right. We have it described here. Just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky. So you're going to know. It may shine. He may land in Jerusalem, but it's shining everywhere. 
And you're going to know. The whole world's going to know. All humanity will see him. We have uh, the Olivet Parallel there, Matthew 24. We've also got references in Revelation as it pertains to the heavenly signs that coincide with the, uh, the bowl trumpet and vile judgments and the anticipation of the coming Christ. But Matthew 24, 30, back up to verse 29. Yeah, see, we got, you'll notice too, the same context uh, with uh, lightning from the east flashes even to the west. You see that there in verse 27. Okay. This is, like I say, it's a parallel message. He gave it repeatedly, I think, in different uh, settings on the way to the cross. You know, if he says here or there, don't chase after him. He's in the wilderness, don't waste your time. He's in the inner rooms, don't believe him. Again, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, but immediately, notice in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. So there's a clue. Woke up this morning, the sun was shining. Okay, well, we're not here yet. <laughs> the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It was a beautiful moon last night or the other night. Monday night, I saw a beautiful moon. The Boy Scout meeting. The stars will fall from the sky. Well, there's still stars up there. At least there was last night. Okay. So uh, don't be all caught up in these sensationalisms, these shucksters that are writing their books and doing all their garbage. So the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, interesting how that follows. It's unrelated to the astronomical phenomena, unrelated to the, um, the physical uh, balls of gas that we call stars and suns and whatnot. Powers of the heavens is the angelic realm. And uh, it's going to be remarkable. They're going to be shaken as well. I believe that the Father throws them all to the earth, even as he throws all the stars out of the sky. And now all the fallen angels are bound to the earth, cast out of the heavens. They're evicted from the third heaven. I think they're evicted from the second heaven as well. They're confined to the earth for the duration of the hostilities. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Yeah, I'd be shaken too if I was a fallen angel knowing what was coming, right? And I've been used, I've been flying around the universe for thousands of years. Now all of a sudden my wings have been clipped and I'm thrust to the earth. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Uh oh. <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, it's similar. I mean, the, the first advent had a sign, right? It had the star that appeared, and the wise men followed it, and they, they knew, and it came, and it shone right above the house there. And, but, you know, think about that now on a global scale. Everybody gets to watch this star. And uh, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's why it's globally undeniable. It's not just an event. It's not just Israel waiting for the Jewish Messiah to come. It's all the tribes of the earth. And it's not an excitement. It's a mourning. And they will see the Son of David, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together. There's a gathering. There's a gathering. Okay? If you want to back up and add to your notes, you want to rightly distinguish between your kingdoms, between your thrones, between your sons, go ahead and add a fourth. Your gatherings. 
You want to distinguish between your gatherings. There's a gathering of wheat. There's a gathering of tares. They're different gatherings. One of the gatherings is bundled and placed into the barn. One of the gatherings is bundled and cast into the fire. You think it's important to distinguish between those? Yeah. (laughs) And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. Now, wait a minute. There's a trumpet before that that's called the last trumpet. But here's another trumpet. So how can something be called the last trumpet if there's trumpets that come after it? And how can something be called the first resurrection if there's resurrections that come before it? Say, just think, work it together, puzzle it out. Know that Scripture has to agree with Scripture. And there's reasons for everything that seems to be puzzling. And don't just get sloppy or don't just assume that uh, things are uh, what you don't think they are. (laughs) All right? Yeah, there's a trumpet there. And it comes after the rapture trumpet, which is called in uh, one place the last trumpet. And so uh, we realize there's more homework to be done. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Is Israel gathered into the land today? No. They are not. There are Jewish people living there. And they do have a political national structure, which they didn't have for 1900 years. Yes, I think it's significant that the nation, the modern state of Israel exists today. I think it's extremely significant, but it's not fulfilled scripture. It's not second advent. It's not the regathering of Israel in faith. It is the preliminaries. It's setting the table, setting the stage. It's Israel in unbelief. It's apostate Israel that will sign Antichrist tree. So I think it's significant. You bet I think it's significant. But it's not Scripture fulfillment, you understand. They're not going to be gathered together until these other things happen, until the uh, procedures that have to be followed there. So when Christ returns, His arrival will be globally undeniable. Globally. Just so you don't miss it, God's going to make very clear that it's the only star up there. Okay? Just so you know, he's not lost in the midst of all those other stars. Okay, you know, astron- they're finding new stars all the time. They're finding new planets. They're finding, oh, we never saw that before. You know, lo and behold, well, it was there all along. How about that? We'll just add it to everything else that's still out there. No, God doesn't let it be like that. He goes ahead and he just wipes the sky clean, right? So some smart aleck scientist, evolutionary scientist, can't say, oh, well, it was there all along. We just didn't know about it. Mm-mm. Man, it's going to be fun. Okay. And I'm happy that by then, you know, we're going to be already in heaven by the time all this stuff starts happening. We're going to be out of here in our judgment seat of Christ, resurrection bodies, marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, Things are great in heaven while, yeah, hell on earth is unleashed in the tribulation. All right, back to Luke 17 then. The kingdom is no longer at hand. When he talks about this, so will the Son of Man be in his day as the lightning flashes from one part of the sky shines to the other part. He stops and he says, you know what? First, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The kingdom is no longer at hand. The kingdom is rejected. 
The rejection of the king requires a second advent and an intercalation between the two advents. It's now required. When the baptizer was announcing, the, functioning as the herald, the kingdom was at hand. And it was still a potentiality that Israel could respond with a positive volition and embrace their king and humble themselves and, and be prepared. But they did not. They rejected. By and large, they rejected as a nation from their leadership on down. So the kingdom is no longer at hand. The language of obligation comes in here in verse 25. First, he must suffer. This is a have to. We've studied the have to's and the want to's in the Christian way of life. This is a have to. This is the language of obligation. For the uh, fulfillment of the plan of God, the rejection, the crucifixion is, is now a have to. And Jesus realizes this in the unfolding of his, in his own understanding, in his own uh, convictions. He's now under a faith conviction that this is the, this is the uh, only route now moving forward. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Truth is, Jesus has already been convinced of this since Matthew 16. He told the disciples, he said, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be, I'm going to, uh, be raised on the third day. Way back in Matthew 16. And Peter said, oh, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And that's the first get behind me Satan reference. And, and he, the disciples have been a hard getting to this point. And most of them are still not willing to admit it okay and even in the garden they're going to scatter and even uh even in a lot of ways it's not until john's standing there in the tomb looking down at the at the cloth that he finally starts to apply faith to some of the messages jesus was giving him so the kingdom is no longer at hand as the rejection of the king requires a second advent and an intercalation between the two so how long is it now in between the two advents okay we don't know I mean, we know it's been roughly 2,000 years, okay? Well, not until 2033, so we're still 23 years shy of 2,000. Does that mean that uh, the rapture is not for 23 more years? No. Rapture could be today. understand that. But it's approaching 2,000 years since the cross. Approaching 2,000 years since the rejection. A little bit more than 2,000 years if you're going to use a 360-day calendar, by the way. So, does this bother you? The idea that it was offered. Now, some people don't like that, and so they, they dismiss the concept, well, it wasn't a real offer. Okay? And they really, they, they write books and articles, and they, they, they lock it in their mind that, okay, it was not a real offer, because God, obviously, in omniscience and foreknowledge, God knew that Israel would reject the king, right? God knew that he would, they would reject the king. And so because he knew that, in foreknowledge, because he knew that, then it's not a, a real offer. Okay? And, and I find that interesting because there's no need for that. It, it doesn't have to be a disingenuous offer. It almost comes across as a deceptive offer then. If it seemed real, but... Since God knew they would reject it, then it wasn't a real offer. It doesn't change the offer. It doesn't change the gift. If I offer a gift to someone and they turn me down, does that change what my gift was in the, in the first place? 
No, still a gift as it was intended, as it was offered. Okay. Even if you have a little bit of foreknowledge, saying, well, I know they're not going to come. Okay. I shouldn't still offer it to them anyway. Maybe they'll come. All right. You ever done that? You've extended an invitation to a party or birthday or wedding or whatever, and you think, well, they're not going to come. But you, you would feel wrong not inviting them, so you invite them anyway, knowing that they're not going to come. Okay? And then they, they show up. <laughs> wow. Man, I thought you were in Japan. What's going on? Um, well, it's no different from God's standpoint. Is he making a real offer? Is the kingdom at hand or not? Or is he just a liar when he says it's at hand, but, oh, not really, because in my foreknowledge, I, okay, no. As far as the Baptist was concerned, the Baptist didn't have the foreknowledge, and, and Christ wasn't using his foreknowledge either. Remember, he lays aside his privileges. He's commuting messages, communicating messages as the Father gave to him to communicate. My message is not mine, but it's my, the Father who sent me. It's his message. So, in any event, it, it, is a, it is a fruitful study to evaluate for those that really want to dig into foreknowledge. What does God know? When does he know it? And how does his foreknowledge affect how he unveils that plan to you and to me? Okay. And it's a, it is a, a very worthwhile study. And uh, one we've, we've touched on in the past. I'm sure we'll come back to it again countless times in the, in the classes ahead. All right. Fifthly, the days of Noah. And the days of Lot. The days of Noah and the days of Lot teach important principles regarding cosmos, societal conditions. In other words, the day and age in which we live. Important principles regarding cosmos, societal conditions in the years prior to the second advent. The days of Noah and the days of Lot. When you evaluate current events... You ought to be able to illustrate the days of Noah and the days of Lot. It's where we are. And it's only going to get worse. It's going to be more so in the coming days. In fact, I think after rapture, it's going to ramp up even more. Because the adversary is not stupid. He knows what's happening. And the minute the saints are all gone and the restraints lifted, you better believe. Days of Noah, days of Lot are going to be uh, launched into dimensions we've never even dreamed of at this point. Absolutely. I mean, you think it's going to be obvious when all the stars of the heaven are gone to the human beings? Think about what it's going to be like to Satan and the fallen angels when all of the sons of God have departed planet Earth. And this whole world is then populated with nothing but unregenerate, lost humans in Adam. I don't think we know fully what our salt and light benefit is. Or the grace that comes through the body of Christ walking this earth. But when, when that's not here anymore, when that restraint is lifted, and the body of Christ is no longer filling this earth, man, I think that's going to be just as frightening to the fallen angels and the demons as it is for uh, for human beings seeing the seeing the heavens blanked out there at night. All right. Um, now, I deliberately did not expand on this um, with subpoints. I want to. 
and we will in the Olivet Discourse, or at least I intend to in the Olivet Discourse. I intend to expand upon um, eating and drinking. Okay, Do we need illustrations on that? <laughs> we'll go to lunch after class. and we'll, uh, We don't need to expand upon marrying and giving in marriage. You say, well, what's wrong with marriage? What's wrong with eating? I like eating. Okay, what's wrong with... Understand that this verse is describing the mentality, the mindset of the antediluvian civilization when Noah was warning them for more than 100 years that destruction was coming and they couldn't care less, didn't pay attention, totally ignored the things of the Lord. A society that is completely wrapped up in daily life. Everything is this life. Life is short. Play hard. Everything is wrapped up in time. And things of the Lord, don't waste my time with that. God, no, don't have time for God. There is no God. Judgment, no, there's no judgment. There's only the here and the now. There's only eating and drinking. My God is my belly. See, that's the Philippians description of what the uh, this whole approach is. Whose God is their belly? Who's uh, you know the the shame there of the of the uh, I'm going to misquote the verse here in a moment, but you know what I'm talking about in Philippians. Whose God is their belly, whose throat is an open grave. So we have the days of Noah. Eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And when that rain started to fall. Isn't it interesting? Well, we'll have uh, some more on this because uh, we'll have... Uh, Steve Austin in town at the end of April to give us some lessons on Noah's flood. And if you haven't heard yet, the Schaefer conference, the sessions on Noah's flood. It was a worthwhile conference, and I would urge you all the audios available on deanbible.org and uh, listen to those messages dealing with Noah's flood. It was uh, definitely a, uh, a blessing. Well, what about the days of Lot? What's different between Noah and Lot? Because um, not only do you have temporal life issues, but it even there's a progression. There's eating and drinking again. Uh, no mention of marriage, uh, but the buying and the selling, the planting and the building. Uh, what happens when secular humanism reaches uh, a level even beyond previous levels? And I think we see that. This is worse. The days of Lot were worse than the days of Noah, and yet God couldn't reflood the place again. God couldn't destroy the planet again. I think the demonism was worse. The, the, the Nephilim activity was worse. I think the, the, um, the other perversions were magnified all the worse in the days of Lot. And yet here comes the fire and the brimstone then to destroy them all. We'll expand on that. Like I say, we get the Olivet Discourse. We'll break that out. Um, I still have F, G, and H, and I want to slow down a little bit. We won't do much with vultures. But I do want to teach the snatching, the gathering, what's happening. This is not rapture, okay? This is not rapture. Um, it, it, sometimes people try to teach it like it's rapture, and it's not. And so I'm going to take, if I have to take a whole hour next week to prove this is not the rapture, it'll be a, a worthwhile hour, okay? Because, okay, yeah, there's two in dead and one's taken and one's left. Doesn't that seem like rapture? It could be. I mean, you could think of it that way. I mean, if uh, you've got a, a believer and an unbeliever in bed together when the trumpet sounds at the rapture, then yeah, one's going to be taken and one's going to be left. Absolutely, that's going to happen at the rapture of the church. 
in the sad cases where you got a believer married to an unbeliever or what have you, or sleeping with an unbeliever. But that's not what this passage is talking about. Okay, that will happen at the rapture, but that's not what's happening in this cha- in this paragraph. And so, because there are other snatching events besides the rapture, and there's a difference between a snatching and a taking. And uh, this passage is not a snatching. This passage is a taking. And uh, that's a difference. So, um, because one's a rescue and one's a judgment. And uh, that's the difference. In the rapture, those that are delivered, they're rescued, they're snatched out, they're snatched from the fire, they're rescued, they're brought into glory. Here, the ones that are taken are the victims, the, the corpses for the vultures. And that's, uh, that's a huge difference. And uh, when, when, we're, when we're snatched, there's no corpses. The vultures have nothing to eat. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth, for what we have to look forward to, for what Israel has to look forward to. And, Father, uh, in all things, uh, I just thank you that this is a lampstand where believers are equipped with uh, stability of doctrine, Father. So we're not all wrapped up in the latest fad, Father. We're not going to bounce from... Um, Jabez to purpose-driven to uh, seeker-friendly to whatever the next craze is, chicken soup, whatever's coming up next, Father. We're just day by day learning, growing, a little here, a little there, and not at all, not at all shaken, Father. We're not in despair. We're not, we're not gloomy uh, over political turns or economic turns or anything, Father. Because day by day, we're waiting for a trumpet. And the darker things get, the brighter our light shines. So, Father, we just thank you for being faithful. And we thank you for a grace plan. We thank you for the body of Christ and the, the marriage supper that's being now, even now, being prepared. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.